0: love is so many things love is my it's what i surrender to in all moments so it can be hard to put you know a a sentence but i think the closest i've ever gotten to be able to, to be able to write a definition of love would be the first sentence in my book which is love is not finding the perfection it's the unconditional permission to explore the imperfection which to me is the acceptance the space to allow someone or something to be imperfect you know it doesn't have to be a person I experience this with with my art constantly developing cultivating this deeper love affair that allows me to show up imperfectly in that that I'm allowing it and my team and, and the collaborators to be imperfect to fail to make mistakes and to trust that that is all part of the greater unfolding. to me that's that's love.
1: Yo, and welcome to the Always Better Than Yesterday podcast with me, Ryan Hartley, and these are the interview sessions where I interview successful and inspiring people about their heart and their mind. These interview sessions are brought to you by our good friends at Web Creation. Head to webcreationgroup.com for stunning websites at sensible prices. Today, This is episode 82 with Nicole Gibson, founder of the Love Out Loud movement. She's on a mission to make self-love, love love for others, and leading a meaningful life, something that we can all learn, accessible to everybody. Head to loveoutloud.com to find out more about the programs that she offers, the blog, the mailing list, and the book that she's written. You can find the full website in the show notes. Also in the show notes, you'll find a link to my website where I am taking on new members for the Master Heart and Mind group coaching program for leaders who lead with love and want to make more of an impact in the world without going it on their own. It's the first time we've opened our doors in a few months. If you are a heart-centered leader looking to develop in your heart and your mind to make more of an impact in the world around you, then you might be interested in coming and joining us head to ryanhartley.co.uk for more information for now let's dive into episode two in an amazing conversation with Nicole much love and welcome back to the always better than yesterday interview sessions and today I am joined by a lady after my own heart Nicole Gibson founder of love out loud movement so welcome Nicole.
0: Thank you so much, Ryan.
1: How are you today?
0: I'm, today's been a big day. I'm feeling good. I'm excited for our interview, feeling grateful for life and to connect with people like yourself on the other side of the world.
1: Love that. Do me the honor and the privilege of just sharing a little bit about your story.
0: My story? Okay, well, I think like many of us growing up, um, I went through my own struggles. And um, I had an experience, many experiences of what it really felt like to not be seen and heard and how much damage that can do to a human being when we, when we don't have a voice or we don't know how to find our voice in the world, except my circumstances were slightly different. I had a very unconventional upbringing, 10 different schools, grew up between London and Australia and left a mainstream school at 14 to pursue performance. And... Um, I had this amazing opportunity for the first time in my life to follow my passion, to not have to conform of what I thought, to not have to conform to convention, to be given a voice through my art. And yet I had all of these incredible opportunities. What no one taught me was it doesn't really matter how many opportunities you have in life if you don't feel worthy of those opportunities, if you don't know how to love yourself through those opportunities. Um, you can't leverage them, you can't make the most of them. And I started to fall very unwell with my mental health, which was, um, I think, an accumulation of many things, the pressures of the industry, as well as just my own relationship with myself, which no one ever talked to me growing up about self-love or the importance of um, being nice to yourself. And I definitely, back then, had extreme tendencies to want to be the best and that put me in a position where I was constantly just weighing myself up against those around me rather than actually developing supportive intimate relationships everything became a competition inside of myself and for anyone listening that has ever been in a situation like that inside themselves it's a prison that you start to build um which resulted in a lot of suffering and a long-term eating disorder called anorexia nervosa and I guess going through that experience it was it was a strange experience because I was wearing the pain um, in a very physical way and yet so many people were afraid if not everyone was afraid to have that conversation with me because of what I now know to be just them being so confronted by the mirror of their own vulnerability and their own fragility that I was representing at that time in my life But of course, through my mind, I saw this as not being worthy of being loved, not being um, accepted, not being seen. Uh, And through a very powerful intervention, which my principal actually facilitated, um, this amazing, incredible man who will always be one of the strongest demonstrations of leadership in my life and what it actually means to lead from a place of love and service. He approached me when no one else did and um, asked me to have a conversation with him. And I remember in that moment at school feeling terror. It was a mixture of shame because I knew what he was going to talk to me about. And um, like I had done something wrong. And isn't that crazy? You know, mm. that when, when we're suffering, we think that we're doing something wrong. Um and I was really terrified. I remember my heart literally feeling like it was going to come out of my chest. But because it was the principal, um, I did what I was told and I followed him to his office and he was extremely vulnerable. I didn't recognize it as vulnerability at that time, but looking back, I can see that that was an extremely vulnerable conversation for him to have Mm. as well. And he reached his office before me and he was already sitting down at his desk and I opened the door. I remember feeling so tense that I actually couldn't sit on the other side of his desk. Like that proximity was too close Mm -hmm. (laughs) for me to feel like I could, um, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't move into that tension. So the best I could do was go and sit on the other side of his office. It was quite a big office. And I I braced myself. I actually put my head in my hands and um, I was waiting to be yelled at. Mm. I was waiting for him to yell at me. Or she he get cross with me? And um, there was a silence that felt like it lasted eternity. It was probably only 30 seconds. And then he said something that really disrupted that whole situation and completely uh, transformed, I believe, the trajectory of my journey. He said, I'm not here to make you feel afraid, Nicole. I just want you to know that you're not alone in going through what you're going through. Mm. And that was such simple words. Mm. Um, but powerfully transformative and for the first time through that whole journey I cried and 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 he didn't try and stop that crying he just he just allowed me to be with that feeling and the feeling was relief it was also the space to feel the grief and the pain um, and the torment of what it had felt like to be living inside of that prison inside of that self-hatred for so many years and to not Hmm. be able to talk about it and it was a release. And not once during that conversation did he mention the fact that I had a mental health problem. He didn't mention the fact that um, it was very clear that I had an eating disorder. He approached it in this completely different way, which I would now see as a very human centered way. He maintained the integrity of my humanity in that moment, mm. in the way that he handled me, in the way that he held me in that um, And he asked me a question after he was just letting me cry. And he said, you know what my favorite thing to do after school is? Do you want to have a guess?" And I was in no state to be answering his question. (laughs) Um, and he said, you know, 30 years I've been in education. My favorite thing has always been to go home and to have a cold beer. Obviously I was pretty shocked by this answer thinking in my mind, are you going to tell me that's the answer to my problems or, (laughs) and then he said, I'm going to make you a deal, Nicole. And he got out a piece of paper and he wrote on the piece of paper, I will not have a beer until you hit your weight target. And he signed it like a contract and he put it on, um, on his wall next to his desk. And there I was thinking that, you know, the, the world was better off without me. I was working towards my own um, disintegration quite literally And there was someone who I respected as a leader, as an authority figure in my life, showing me that he was gonna sacrifice something that he loved to invest in um, and believe in me actually being able to get to a place where I had overcome what I was going through. And all I could ask was, why would you do that for me? And he said, I have no idea what it's like to be a 16 year old going through this, Nicole. But what I do understand is what it feels like to be in pain. And I know what it feels like to be trying to get to the top of a mountain and to be doing that alone. And I just want you to know that you're not alone. Mm. And shortly after, my life became a series of interventions by incredible doctors. But through that whole period, he was the pillar of strength that inspired the beginnings of my work um and my message is very simple and it remains very simple and it has been from the beginning that we naturally are designed to heal we're naturally designed to overcome adversity we're naturally resilient we just need to give each other and ourselves the space to um evolve the way that we're meant to evolve but we're so caught up diagnosing and trying to fix and trying to interject and interfere and have opinions and agendas that we, we don't notice the natural unfolding that's always there, um, which is what I call love.
1: Thank you so much for sharing that. And and I, I watched your TEDx recently and that story touched my heart. I, I was hoping you were going to share that today because I think that is such a great example of, of, leading with love, but also this sense of loving tough. And uh, we always know it is tough love, but I I like the fact that love comes first. in this. And you talked about um, the courage and confrontation. What does the phrase love tough kind of spark up in you?
0: Love tough. I guess the first thing that comes to mind is people have these conceptions that love is this fluffy thing, um, and it's often dismissed or romanticized. But even referring to that story, you know what John did. Who's the name of my principal? Was not um, warm and fuzzy. It was it was confronting, mm. and it was hard, and it was vulnerable. And I say vulnerable with an undertone of um, strength. You know, it took a lot of strength mm. because all of us are going to be confronted with moments and opportunities and choices. Ultimately, that's what they are. That feel incredibly tense and feel hard and make you feel contracted and you feel the resistance. And I see this constantly in my work. This is what the movement supports people in being able to break through is rather than allowing that fear to consume you, rather than allowing that resistance to contract you to a point of um, just not being able to progress, there is a choice in that to be able to move in to um, expansion and into the breakthrough. And I see this as what it would mean to choose love and how it pertains to, to tough love or <laughs> loving in a tough way. It's gonna feel like that. Sometimes love is gonna be the, the truth, you know, and that's gonna feel like a sword and that's gonna be really, really hard to, um, to come to terms with. That was actually a beautiful conversation that I was having with one of our community members yesterday and his words, which just touched me so deeply was truth without compassion and love can sometimes be brutality. And Mm. I just think that's so Mm -hmm. profound. But when you, when you tell the truth and you, you confront someone with what they're not, they haven't yet been willing to look at and you do that from a place of love, then there's the possibility and the nurture for that person to be able to break through into a more expensive version of themselves. And I think that that's so powerful.
1: Mm. My personal definition of love has always been um, putting someone else's needs before my own. And I've watched your story this morning um, about loving me, loving you. And when you realize there's no separation. So I'm I'm starting to reevaluate my own definition. I just wonder what your definition of love is.
0: Mm, I love that. Um, yeah, I love that that was able to provoke that thought for you. It's so interesting, just quickly on that, that it's the distinctions in when we in which we think about things that actually determine the experience. So when you think that you know love is only about the self or love is only about the other, you you're framing it in a way that you can only experience it like that. Um, yeah, I'm I'm very passionate about that being in a, a harmony with giving and receiving. I mean, love is so many things. Love is my—it's what I surrender to in all moments. So it can be hard to put, you know, a, a sentence. But I think the closest I've ever gotten to be able to to be able to write a definition of love would be the first sentence in my book, which is: "Love is not finding the perfection; it's the unconditional permission to explore the imperfection."
1: Mm-hmm. Mm, say that again. <laughs>
0: love isn't finding the perfection. It's not this destination that you can get to where everything's perfect. It's the unconditional permission to explore the imperfection, which to me is the acceptance, the space to allow someone or something to be imperfect. You know, it doesn't have to be a person. I experience this with with my art. I'm constantly developing, cultivating this deeper love affair that allows me to um, show up imperfectly in that that mm. I'm allowing it and my team and and the collaborators to be imperfect to fail to make mistakes and to trust that that is um, all a part of the greater unfolding to me that's that's love
1: said recently on a post love is not sentimental it's action do you agree and I'm like 100% you know I've I'm well into Bob Goff who talks about love does love is a verb uh, as is leadership love and leadership for me is is one of the same and um, I just would love to know what you interpret love as a verb looking like
0: I love that I mean how we describe it in Love Out Loud is it's an actionable skill set and um, the reason I love framing it like that is all of a sudden it becomes learnable mm. it becomes it becomes something that people can engage with that they can become better at if you want to use the word better they can become more practiced at um, and it it's the action you know the philosophy love out loud literally means finding the love inside of you and rather knowing that passively, being able to remove the, the barriers that are preventing you from expressing that out loud, which I really see as ultimate liberation, you know, when you can express your love when there's no hesitation to follow the things that you love and to mm-hmm. follow your passions and tell the people you love that you love them, that is liberation, that's freedom. Yeah. So I think love definitely is a verb.
1: I love that. My, my, uh, my listeners will know that I've been running always better than yesterday alongside my full-time job at the police for the last three years. And um, yeah. this year I went full-time with, with always better than yesterday. But when I used to talk about leading with love and, you know, might see my, my logo with a blue heart and it, it wasn't always comfortable or accepted in a, in a policing environment. Um, who's this guy talking about love and meditation, you know, but I just, I just would love to know what barriers you see um, in the corporate world from adopting this leading with love approach.
0: (laughs) I try not to see barriers anymore, but I definitely did at one point in my journey and um, there, there were a lot of um, barriers, you know, and how do I want to articulate this? What I noticed through doing this work again and again and again is what I've at the beginning saw or defined as a barrier i now see and what i learned to see as that is the resistance um, that the that is equal to the person's breakthrough mm-hmm. that resistance that's felt in a corporate environment when you talk about feelings or you bring up a vulnerable conversation the resistance that you feel which is a it's a palpable Feeling, you know, anyone that's had tried to have that conversation in a corporate workplace, you know, or the, or the police or any kind of bureaucratic system which has been overly institutionalized knows what I'm talking about, knows what we're referring to. But what I started to notice in my own ability to be with that resistance, so to actually not allow that resistance to be like, okay, this isn't a conversation people want to have, I'm going to run out the door now, or I'm going to try and um, break the silence to make people feel more comfortable. I'm now um, very good at just being with that resistance and not judging it and just being like, okay, this is the resistance. Like this is the amount that people need to drop into their vulnerability. And when they do, that's going to be a really powerful breakthrough. I see it at retreats as well, that there's Mm -hmm. always this huge resistance that peaks. And then when it's at the peak, it dissipates and people have these amazing breakthroughs. So it's really an opportunity that barrier you know, that you see as a limitation um, is, is not a limitation, but you have to get comfortable with being in that resistance. And if you can, it's very human. And this is what I've realized through my work. We all want permission to have those conversations, mm-hmm. even those that seem the most offensive, um, the toughest, the most judgmental. These are actually the people that need the conversation the most. And if you bear with it, they might not ever tell you, you know, their pride might get in the way of of telling you how much of a difference that made by you breaching that conversation or having that conversation, but it will leave a lasting impact on them. Um, And I truly believe that we're all looking for the same thing. We all Mm -hmm. want permission to express and to be real and to be authentic and to know that we're okay to come as we are without needing to put on a facade or pretend to be strong or wear the mask. Mm -hmm.
1: I love that. I feel like we've only touched part one of your story, and I know that there's so much that you've gone on to do. Let's take it back to um, late teens. Uh, late teens. Yeah.
0: Well, after that, I was so inspired, and I—long story short—graduated the equivalent of high school. And mum uh, and dad sat me down, and they were like, "You know, what are you? What are you going to do?" journey for, for everyone I'm watching me go through that and I was finally getting to a place where I was stable um and there was just this fire in me to make change and um I remember saying to them in the conversation I, I need to go and change the world through love I need to help create spaces where people feel seen and heard keeping in mind that this was very conceptual back then like mm-hmm. There was no one I could follow on Instagram. Instagram didn't even exist. Facebook didn't even exist. There was nowhere I could go to see other people doing this work. It was not a thing. It was, so it was just all intuitive. Um, and yet it was this deep fire inside of me to want to bring that space to people. And I knew I could feel how needed that was in the world. And, um, you know, with my history of mental health, saying these sorts of things was easily interpreted as <laughs> a continuation of insanity, you know, well, wanting to change the world through love. Like, what is that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and their advice to me was why don't you find a more stable path and maybe later on in your career, in your 50s or 60s, then you can give back in, in that way. And that to me made absolutely no sense, keeping in mind that I had overcome an illness that I had to fight for my life to survive. Mm-hmm because it was very critical, I had a completely different perspective, which was the biggest blessing of what I went through, that I understood really that this life is impermanent and that every single moment is precious and life is extremely fragile and it just wasn't enough for me to go and, and live a life within a system that I didn't believe was um, in alignment with my perspectives and my values mm. and what I saw and what I wanted to bring to the world. I just couldn't do it. So um, I pretty much started touring immediately from 18. Um, you no know, audiences of three or four people <laughs> who, you know, were still even in small groups hesitant to have these conversations, but the work because of the purity of the intention and just compounded and built um, and audiences of three or four turned into schools inviting me to speak and community groups and workplaces and, it just had this momentum. Um, and after a few years, I had been traveling consistently around Australia in, um, in my van, which was my, my tour home for that time. I'd worked in 300 communities and and listened to tens of thousands of stories. And
1: Mm.
0: after that time, there was no doubt in me that this was my last work. I was so deeply moved by the amount of humanity that I had been, exposed to and i really had no agenda going into those spaces there was no this is the solution it was just listening it was sharing and then through my sharing giving them permission to share and to hold a space where they weren't judged and they were held and they were seen and these communities are having powerful transformations you know like measurably lower um addiction rates and suicide rates and lowered amount of mental illness and a higher attendance in school, less violence because the communities were actually gathering to talk about what was true and to understand that actually, if you have a different perspective to this person, it doesn't, you don't have to villainize each other. You don't have to stigmatize each other. You can can be in that and still respect each other. And these are to me really things that should be common sense, but I think we were so removed in our cultures I think we're, we've come a long way. You know, I think back to that time, one of the first rural communities I went to, I got out of my van and walked about hundred meters and I was spat on by one of the teenagers in the community. And that was actually a very powerful moment for me mm-hmm. because I had a choice in that moment to be like, okay, I'm, I'm a symbol of something that has caused a lot of pain for these people in the past. Am I going to hate? you know, or, or am I going to forgive and, I, and I'm going to continually show up and understand that that, that wasn't about me as, as a person. It wasn't mm. about Nicole. It was what I was representing, which is what I was there to change. And I, I think just through that relentless devotion and that commitment, breakthroughs started to happen um, because when people doubt you, if you continue to back yourself, and I think this is a powerful message to anyone that's, that finds themselves in this position. If you continue to back yourself In a way that's humble and and graceful people will eventually doubt themselves so i think that's very much been my journey and i feel like the universe was on my side very much through all of the right time right places right opportunities um i shifted into advocacy after those three years and that put me in a position of um, the youngest Commonwealth Commissioner in history, which was very profound, you know, going from very grassroots change. And there had never been someone advising in that role that had such a grassroots background. So I went from grassroots change to advising the PM and the health minister on how to spend a $40 billion budget. It was very, it it was quite radical, (laughs) um, but powerful because, it was undeniable the results that this sort of work was, was doing in communities and they were investing hundreds of millions of dollars into this problem and every single year the rates went up and i was doing this you know as a young social entrepreneur completely bootstrapping had ten dollars to my name you know and yet these transformations were taking place um, so i guess that got the attention and my work's just been an accumulation since then after eight years working in those systems I realize this is not about mental health. This is not about addiction. This is not about domestic violence. This is not about any of the challenges that we think we're facing as a humanity. They're symptoms of a much deeper challenge, which is the war that we all find ourselves in within our own mind and hearts. And that comes into a coherence. And I've seen it on an individual level, I've seen it in teams, I've seen it in communities, when you find a coherence between your head and your heart there's a natural um, harmony that starts to arise from that and more conscious decisions and a, and a more beautiful way of, of living.
1: Love that. What a great story. And, and you describe yourself as a bridge. What does that really mean?
0: A bridge. Um, I mean, I think I bridge a lot of things. (laughs) I feel like I bridge the transpersonal and the personal a lot. I feel like I bridge the, the, yeah, the spirit, the the spiritual essence that exists inside of all of us that I feel the Western, our Western culture is so removed from for multiple reasons. I think one of the main reasons being consumerism and just how much we've learned to see things as disposable, mm-hmm. even sex now is disposable, you know, nothing is um, sacred. We haven't learned what that means. So... I guess through sitting with so many people in their deepest humanity and their deepest vulnerability, there is a sense of being connected to something that's so much bigger than myself and that devotion and that faith has given me a very strong connection to my own sense of spirituality. And I feel that's what people experience when I work with them and when my team work with them. So there's that. I think a bridge between, um, you know communities that have been enemies previously where they see the difference over the sameness and just the remembering i think i hold a space very deep in my heart that it doesn't matter who you who you perceive to be different to you or how vast you deem those differences to be where we've got more that makes us the same always there's, there's more of what makes us similar and the same and that unifies us than what separates us, but we're constantly sold these ideas of difference, whether that's social class, education, gender, race. Um, they're artificial barriers, you know, they're mm. not real. We have to break them down if we want to find a place of truth. And um, I believe this is this is the most important key to our evolution. If we want to survive as a human race, we need to understand that we're not separate from each other. We're one human family. Mm-hmm. Nations are not real; they're artificial. They're constructed. You know, start to understand that just because there is a a, a law written doesn't necessarily um, override this natural truth, which mm-hmm. is an interconnected ecosystem. Just spend enough time in nature, you begin to see it. I think it's beautiful what we've created with our systems. Uh, I also feel, especially in the past few months, the world has experienced just how much we need to potentially revisit our, the system in which we're all living in. That's mm. my perspective. Um, if we can build those systems from a different place, from a different vibration and with different awareness, um, which I think right now at this point, in particular in our timeline as a species, we have, we have an opportunity to do that then we can create a very, very beautiful, prosperous life for everyone on the planet, everyone.
1: For my listeners that are wanting to take one further step towards loving out loud, where should they start?
0: (laughs) Um, I think the book's a really great place to start, or the audio book, understand the philosophy. I share a lot of stories in there that helped me come to the realisation or the realizations that created the philosophy of loving out loud mm-hmm. uh also jump in our, our community on facebook there's always really cool things happening in there so yeah or follow me and i'm sure there'll be many links on any of those profiles to to learn how you can explore our community more deeply
1: fantastic i'll share all the links within the the show notes so that our listeners can go and get those my ethos is about helping people and in- teams and organizations be better than yesterday. And I'm just curious to know what that phrase always better than yesterday means to you.
0: Always better than yesterday. Mm. The first thing that it triggers is we're always in um, an evolutionary, uh, we're always evolving. There's always an evolutionary unfolding that's happening. Always, we're only ever expanding. It's on the way, not in the way. And that's the first thing that I think about that even if you feel things are against you and that things are going wrong, we're always moving forward in our journey and our evolution.
1: Nice one. Love that. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your love and your energy. Um, I would love to hear a final thought from your good self.
0: Mm, Just be good to each other. Learn to love yourself. Really like spend time with you. You are, a relationship in your life, see yourself as a relationship in your life, ask yourself, how do I relate to myself? How do I talk to myself? Um, Get curious and inquire, ask questions. And all of these will lead you down a beautiful pathway to awakening, which is the greatest gift that you can give to yourself and, and the world.
1: Nicole Gibson, the world needs more people like you. Thank you so much for your time.
0: Thank you so much, Ryan.
1: And there we go. What an amazing conversation. What an amazing human being. Um, As I do every podcast, I like to reflect on one or two key points from the episode. And and as you will have heard, Nicole really aligns with a lot of my own message around leading with love. But the thing I want to draw to your attention, the thing that really resonated with me is that there is always more that unites us than divides us. There is always more that unites us than divides us. Love saves the day. Love will be what transformed the world from the inside out. I hope this has inspired you to show up with a little bit more love in your toolkit for yourself and for others. And until next time, I'll speak to you soon. Much love.